Welcome to the Judging More Than Just the Cover podcast. I'm Amber Gregg. I'm Kate Oda. And I'm James Moore. And today we are going to be talking about Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. It is a bit older compared to some of the other books we've talked about. It kind of reached its peak back in 2015, 2016, but it's been on bestseller lists for a while and it's always a recommended book club book. And it is a thriller mystery that takes place in London. There is the main character, Rachel, who witnesses some shady stuff while she's on the train and kind of inserts herself into a murder investigation. And I will say that there will be spoilers. So if you have not read the book, make sure you stop listening and go read it or watch the movie and then come back and join us. So I had actually read the book, if not once, uh, two times before, and then reread it recently for this. And in the first two times I read it, I read the book and recently I've been doing a lot of audiobooks. So I listened to it this time, which was a different experience, but I probably have some different ideas about this book going through it again after I already know what's going to happen. And I think Kate, you said that you already kind of knew the main plot points. And then James, you came into this not really knowing anything about the book. So James, if you want to say what your initial thoughts were going into this completely blind. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll start with ignorance. The uh, the books for me started out very slow. I mean, I'm I'm usually not a um, a diary type book reader. It's because it starts it's the format is kind of like a diary starting out. You know, I did this, I did that, and very little dialogue. So it a, a lack of dialogue. I thought this was really going to be a chore to read. It really picked up as the story developed for me, thankfully. But still, the story overall left me a little depressed because the um, the main character. I felt I just felt bad for her. It it, it seemed like her, her actual situation did not really change at all, and um, I felt like I was taken on a ride where. Yes, there was a antagonist. Yes, he, you know, he kind of got what he deserved and and other people involved kind of got what they deserved. But the girl on the train, the the title character, um, life is still pretty much sucks for her. <laughs> that that was that was my my first impression. Yeah, absolutely. What were your thoughts, Kate? So so I knew the main plot points because I read uh Save the Cat writes a novel and it lays out all the plot points for you. So I knew who the murderer was, you know, all the twists. But as I read it, I I realized I hated every single character. Like I wasn't rooting for anybody. And it was kind of like if Bridget Jones's diary was about Bridget maybe witnessing a murder and then like trying to handle it (laughs) because she was a mess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this was really, I don't know if it was the first unreliable narrator book, but it really seems like around that time that this book came out was when the unreliable narrator theme became really popular. And it started to get really frustrating for me because I love thriller mystery novels. I would say it's probably my favorite genre. But then a lot of the books ended up kind of copycatting this. And there were a lot of the girl on the blank, the girl in the window, (laughs) you know, all those types of books where you have the alcoholic or you have someone with memory loss and you have this 
narrator who you can't trust what they're saying. And it turns out that they may or may not, you know, you're going through this whole journey with them. And then you find out, oh, okay, that's not really what's happening. And it, I think it can work in some cases. But, you know, rereading it and listening to it now, I just found myself getting annoyed. I think I really liked it the first time, because it was so new. It was a new concept. And I wasn't expecting that. And, and now it's like, oh, you just kind of expect that if it's a mystery, the you can't trust anything <laughs> the narrator says or what anyone else says. Um, so I normally ask this at the end, but since you're talking about not really liking any of the characters, do you think that there was a strong female character at all in this book? There are a lot of female main characters. I mean, technically, Rachel made choices that impacted things in the plot. And she herself was driving it because if she just sat there, the plot wouldn't have happened. So even though I dislike her as a person, I think technically she was a strong character because she had so much agency. She wasn't a good character <laughs> because I couldn't root for her. But um, I think what bothered me, that this book had my pet peeve. I'm just going to jump right to that, which my pet peeve is someone knows who did it the whole time and they just have to remember harder. <laughs> I hate that so much. <laughs> And that's what Rachel did. So she did my pet peeve, but I'm still going to say she's probably technically a strong character because we got all of her personality, even though it sucked. Absolutely. Well, I, I have a little bit different definition of strong character in my mind. I think that Rachel was necessary, of course, to the story, but necessity is not strength of character to me. A strong character has some kind of level of control and influence. Everything seemed to be happening to her, to Rachel, you know, and she reacted to it. It wasn't like she had, she didn't even have the discipline to to stop drinking or to not get in, involved with, you know, a possible murder suspect as, as far as, you know, keeping the pants on. She, she, I thought she was, I thought she was fairly weak, but in looking for another character that showed like real strength, uh, I, I agree with you, Kate, that everybody was kind of pretty reprehensible at, at different levels. There was there's nobody that I, maybe maybe the the, the baby <laughs> had no lines. It was innocent. And, and then the, the only person that did nothing wrong that was mentioned in this book. So I think in my humble opinion that we kind of we we missed the bullseye as far as looking for a strong female character. Yeah, I mean, I probably lean more towards what Kate's saying, like, even though they're all unlikable and unreliable, Rachel did impact the investigation being solved. I mean, if she didn't offer what she knew and put herself in harm's way and <laughs> insert herself into this, it probably wouldn't have been solved or maybe not as quickly. I'm sure they would have figured it out eventually. But she she made very clear and deliberate choices to do what she did, whether they were smart or not. Um, yeah, she she drove the plot. I mean, there were a lot of male characters that were taking advantage of the female characters. But a lot of times you only have like, you know, a male detective in in these mystery thrillers and male main characters. So the fact that we have all these female leads that all have their voices and and are playing these huge roles, I would argue that, that we do have some strong, unlikable, unreliable characters. <laughs> so 
One of my big pet peeves, though, and this kind of is similar to what you were saying, Kate, in, in Mysteries, is, you know, Agatha Christie is kind of the, the benchmark for mystery novels. But she always has this crazy explanation of how things have happened and you have to kind of rewind and the author has to explain all the steps for how this could possibly make sense. So I think there has to be this balance in mystery novels where you want to surprise the reader, but you don't want the twist to be so crazy that it's that you have to work really hard to explain it. So the big twist, well, there's a couple big twists. So the first one is Tom, uh, Rachel's ex-husband is actually the abusive one, but he's been leading her to believe that she was abusing him. uh, And, you know, he's basically this psychopath and nobody has realized it this whole time. So do you think that it made sense or was there a lot of explaining that had to be done to make it make sense? I mean, uh, this is something that I thought the movie actually did better than the book. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so what they did in the movie was they had Phoebe from Friends was in it (laughs) and she played the wife of Tom's boss. And there was that incident where Rachel kind of embarrassed Tom at a, at a work party. And in the movie they were like, oh yeah. And that, you know, that got him fired, except she runs into the boss's wife on the train. And the boss's wife is like, oh, how are you doing? Are you okay? And Rachel's like, oh, I'm very sorry about the party. And the woman is like, what are you talking about? You just fell asleep. And we fired Tom because he slept with half the office. And that's when she has the revelation that he was lying to her that whole time. Instead of in the book, I feel like she just sort of like realized it on the fly or looking at a hole in the wall or something. Well, and that Um, was the frustrating part too, is that they spent a lot of time talking about um, blackouts and how there's literally no way to recover the memories that happen in a blackout, even through a hypnotherapy. And then all of a sudden she just gets clarity and remembers everything. Yeah. Like you can't have it both ways. Right. So that was frustrating to me. And I never, I don't think I made that connection the first time I read the book. How do you remember everything all of a sudden if you weren't supposed to remember anything? Yeah. So I think that the movie did it better by having someone else tell her what was going on. It was easier probably on film to have that too. Right, you harder to be in someone's head so much in a movie, unless you're doing voiceovers the entire time. Were there voiceovers in the movie? It's been a while since I watched it. Just at the introduction, I think. Well, as as far as the the book is concerned, it would that was another one of the disappointments to me that you know she just all of a sudden re- remembered things and like you said, you know, just thinking harder got her to where she, um, you know, everything came rushing back. The, I, when I read a what I call a murder mystery, and my uh, again, it's another hum, humble opinion. I pick up a murder mystery because I want some kind of chance, some kind of opportunity to be able to figure it out. You know, give me some clues. I understand that the narrator in this case were were people that, and when your characters in the book, you can't be reliable totally because you don't know everything. You're one of the characters. But in other murder mysteries, even if it's from the detective's point of view, you get to see certain patterns or you get a clue revealed or something like that that gives you a chance to figure it out. There's no way if you're reading this book from the beginning that you can figure out who the murderer really is until, you know, that the final scenes. And, and for me, that was a little bit of a disappointment. It was 
I was just watching somebody just suffer in misery <laughs> until they figure out somebody is a murderer. And then that that murderer gets killed and, and they have they have to fabricate a little bit of lie to, to cover up what actually happened to kill the murderer. And then the end credits. So I, I found the experience unsatisfying. Well, and that's what I was saying, too, about Agatha Christie novels. Like, it's the same way where, I mean, it's set up to make it where there's no way you could guess because it's just so ridiculous. And I think that a lot of mystery thrillers have this, like, they have to have a twist now. Like, that's the big thing is, like, you can't talk about a book because it's going to have this huge twist. So you can't really say anything about the plot. And that's why I don't read anything about books, because there are so many that have these huge twists that you know sometimes work sometimes don't but they're sometimes used too much where you're right you as a reader you can't solve the mystery it's just so out of the blue and then like I said they had this crazy explanation to make it all work but they didn't give you any of those clues or pieces leading up to it and I think this one had some hints maybe I just saw them more going back through it again. Um, but yeah, I mean, they they had all the red herrings, which I thought was actually really funny that they had the redheaded guy as a red herring. <laughs> like how on the nose is that? But what did you all think of the twist with Megan? So the, the woman who was murdered, she had this whole backstory about her, her child that she had accidentally killed her child. And I, to be honest, completely forgot about that part of the story. And I think since I've read it the first time, I've become a mother. And I think that's really changed how I am impacted by stories. And, and that just like really freaked me out hearing it in the audiobook and, and how she she did that. So so what were your thoughts on that twist and how it impacted her relationships moving forward and ultimately, you know, her being murdered. It seemed like the only purpose for that past was a kind of an explanation as to how she was really a reprehensible person when it came to relationships after the fact. I mean, she just stay with somebody as long as they're entertaining and then get bored easily and then move on. And I don't know exactly how that connects to accidentally kind of killing your child, but this there's a whole, I think that's a whole other psychological novel that should have been explored. And it probably would have been more interesting than this, this so-called murder mystery. Uh, yeah, I thought that the the drowning her child thing was a little bit out of left field. I mean, it kind of explained some of her psychological stuff, but I'm not a psychologist, so I couldn't exactly make that direct connection either. It just felt like overly sad. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't understand its inclusion. I guess it's backstory, so it can be whatever the author wants, and she chose that. I don't know. I, I wasn't into it. <laughs> well, I think it comes back again to like the shock factor. And I think that books are really trying for that. And I understand you can't have the same books over and over again. And in certain genres, especially mystery thriller, tend to lend themselves well to a big shock and twist, as we were saying earlier. But yeah, at certain points, it's like you're just doing the shock for the shock. And it maybe could have been something a little less uh, traumatizing to both the reader and the character because uh, really 
all the characters had really horrible lives, James, as you were saying, and it was just ultimately a really sad book. So, I mean, it was a really, really popular book. I mean, not just when it first came out, it still is. And the fact that we picked this for our podcast is a testament to that. So why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it resonated with so many people? And I know we've kind of had this conversation before about best-selling books and, and why they're popular versus why we have issues with it but this book in particular why do you think that is um i'm gonna i'm gonna guess that it appealed to readers who don't necessarily pick up a thriller or a mystery so they're not exactly looking for those cues that are in more traditional ones maybe they weren't trying to solve the mystery maybe they were just interested in the characters I'm guessing the appeal was that it was three different uh, women perspectives and most of adult readers are women. I'm guessing it's because the person who solved the mystery was an amateur and so maybe they felt like they could put themselves in her shoes and maybe because all the characters' lives were so messed up, maybe it made readers feel better about their own lives. (laughs) Yeah, and as I was saying earlier, the unreliable narrator and kind of this you know, non-detective person solving a mystery, it has become really popular. So I think we all are maybe jaded by that too in our discussion of it. Because when I looked back at my initial review, I actually gave this five out of five stars the first time I read it. And my opinion of it has changed. And I didn't know if that was just because so much time has passed and I've read so many more books since then. I've read so many more similar books and copycat books since then. And also just going through the experience again, where I wasn't impacted by the twists and the shocks because I knew what was coming. So I think I was able to kind of see all the different elements a little bit more this time around. But it sounds like you all were kind of in the same boat even on your first read through. Yeah, you know, I I believe, I remember asking the question point blank about us as a group. You know, why is it that we are down on a number of these books that are bestsellers. And we came to the conclusion, if, if, if I'm correct and remembering, we came to the conclusion that we read a little bit differently being in some, you know, authors, in some cases, professional authors, and, and the general public just want to be entertained. You know, they just, they just have enough money to, to buy a book and they get that one. And that's part of the, the bestseller thing. I'm learning more and more as I, you know, hear what you guys are experiencing, you know, getting your books sold and and uh, just realizing the fact that you know, L. Ron Hubbard is a best-selling author, you know, and and knowing how that happened. It didn't happen from people buying a book. It happened from connections in stores buying the books and him buying the book himself. So there's a lot into being a best-selling author in some cases, in a lot of cases, other than the quality of the material. There's a lot of politics involved. There's a lot of finance involved and a lot of connections involved in becoming a a best-selling author. So I think that that happens in some cases, and those are more factors than the quality of the material. Absolutely. And and that is exactly what we were talking about. I forget which book we were discussing at that point. But I think that with this book, a lot of people actually really did like it. It's been chosen for a lot of book clubs. Um, people have raved about it. They've recommended it to other people. So that is like a different 
level of bestseller, in my opinion, versus ones that just get on the bestseller list because of those reasons you said. Um, there are a lot of people that that truly did love it, just like I did when I first read it. And I think, you know, I think that it can connect with people. And I think that all the really traumatic things, you know, maybe if people haven't gone through it, it exactly, they can still maybe feel some empathy towards the characters. And that's part of it. Um, it and I haven't read any of Paula Hawkins other books but I know she's had a few others that have, have done very well and probably just kind of writing on the success of this book so I can't speak to you know if they have similar types of characters or twists and have you read any of her other books nope no. probably won't either <laughs> <laughs> So what did you think about Anna, Tom's new wife? So of course, if you so if you were the new wife, we'll just ignore for a second the fact that she was uh, the reason why they weren't together or one of the reasons why they weren't together anymore. If you were a new wife and the ex-wife was an alcoholic and really needy and kept coming around and around and around, you might feel kind of defensive too and you wanted to protect your kid. But do you think she had any idea beforehand or if she was just kind of fooling herself I mean she knew that he was capable of having an affair because that's how they got together but you don't think that she saw any signs of abuse I mean it's pretty wild that he could go from like straight up abusing Rachel all the time to like oh we're gonna pretend like we have this really happy marriage with a new wife I don't know I feel like all of her energy was focused on Rachel instead of focusing on Tom and so that's what we saw when we were in her perspective. But I'm I'm sure there were things going on that if I did a second read just for that, I would pick up on like, oh, he has a very difficult password on his computer or something. Yeah. And I don't think it was brought out much in the movie either because I just watched that today. <laughs> Yeah, but he did. He every time he walked in a room and she had been doing something like going through his stuff, he'd be like, "What are you doing?" So clearly, he was I don't know defensive because of course he was a murderer, so of course he's defensive. (laughs) But that's the thing too is just being an adulterer is not. It doesn't mean that you're a murderer, or it doesn't mean that you are an abusive husband. Like even before he murdered um, Megan, he was still doing awful things to Rachel. So those things aren't always connected, but it seems like a lot of times in books they are. Like, well, if you cheat, then you're just an awful person, and you're a murderer, and you do all these things. You know, it, it just seemed like the. I guess that maybe is true if you watch a lot of like murder documentaries where they the person who was a murderer you know you wouldn't think that necessarily just by looking at them and their life and and their situation I guess a murderer has to start somewhere the first time but he truly seemed like a psychopath it wasn't really like a crime of passion necessarily yeah it it seemed like that the whole murder thing kind of was a almost a happenstance but um you know as far as far as the character of, of Anna you know my opinion on her she had a shot at being the person that I was going to root for until she started talking. <laughs> every every chapter before she started talking, you know, you 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 kind of empathize with her a little bit. She's she's the she's married to this guy who has his alcoholic wife that's still like a boat anchor to him in the relationship, and she's trying to take care of this child and that sort of thing. You kind of feel a little bit of empathy for her, and still until she starts talking and starts talking about how. 
you know, it, she gets into that trope of, well, he, he might cheat, but, you know, but not on, not with her, you know, kind of putting her down, thinking her that she's uncheatable. She's just like, look at me. I look good. I had a baby and I still can wear a bikini type attitude. And that made me almost want him to cheat on her with somebody else. <laughs> I didn't want him to be a murderer, but she, I mean, she needed to have that wake up call. She was unfortunately, there's a, a, an ongoing theme in a lot of books and movies of the other woman never thinking that there could be another woman. <laughs> and I don't, and I don't know how much that is in real life, but Man, I don't know if they're going for accuracy or whatever. I I just don't. I haven't run into people in situations like that where they're the other other woman. But I just wish that I didn't have to watch it on TV and and read about it as much as I do, because it seems like they they lean on it a lot. But as as women, I'm curious as to what you think about that one particular aspect in literature and entertainment that the other woman never thinks that there's another woman. I mean, I think it has to do with narcissism, honestly, because if you are knowingly the other woman in the first place, so in, in Anna's situation, she knew that she could fool herself, but I mean, she knew that uh, she was the other woman and that I think you have to be a narcissist to do that. Like, well, I'm going to be better and they're going to like me better and they're going to choose me and then and thinking that you've changed them, that that the only reason why they cheated was because of how amazing you are, right? So then there's no way they could possibly cheat on you, as you were saying, James, you know, just her attitude about like, oh, I look great and whatever. There's there's no way because they picked you. They picked you over the other person. And in her mind, she's like, well, Rachel is such a mess up of a person. Like, she doesn't even matter. Of course, he chose me. So, so I think a lot of times it is that. And yeah, there probably are a lot of narcissists out there and to be the other woman. Uh, so I, to me, that was believable from the outside. You know, we we see it. But I think the people who are in that position and Anna's position, it makes sense. But I agree with you. I do think that it shouldn't be relied on as heavily in literature. But we could say that about a lot of things <laughs> that we talk about every week that, oh, man, I wish I wouldn't see this anymore in books or movies. But that's, you know, that's why they're tropes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that trope, I, I guess I haven't seen it as much personally, but it logically makes sense. Like if this dude was going to cheat on Rachel, of course he would cheat on Anna. And then he probably would have cheated on Megan because I, I think he had a power complex, which is even possibly why they stayed there so that Rachel could come around and he'd be like, oh, I have power over her because she keeps coming around. Like, no, just move. Hello. So I, yeah, I was kind of surprised that Anna was surprised because I was like, girl, come on. (laughs) You know, sometimes you have to just like sit the girl down and be like, listen, (laughs) think about this. Once a cheater, always a cheat. So then what did you think about the therapist then? Because he was kind of like this holier than thou type person. But then he had, he was with Megan, but then he still was trying to be like, oh, I do the right thing and trying to be her her therapist like that's another thing that happens a lot in in books and movies and I don't know how often it happens in real life that somebody falls for their therapist I'm sure they fall for their therapist a lot but how often are those feelings reciprocated right so you know I don't know what are your thoughts on the therapist and in that whole situation and how he wasn't really ever considered for the murder or at least from what we saw he ended up being a little forgettable but um 
again, another person that was in the running for not reprehensible human being, if sometimes you have a, a good person that makes a mistake, slips up, okay, and then tries to make it right. But he kind of stuck with her for too long to just have, you know, made a mistake in the slip up. So he slid into reprehensible <laughs> for continuing that relationship and trying. He he tried to have his cake and eat it too, so to speak. He tried to you know snuggle up next to her and be her therapist. That's what really made me want to spit on him <laughs> when he was in that mode. And it and I, if I'm not mistaken, that happened more than once during their session. So yeah, that's my opinion of the therapist. Another. Yeah, another reprehensible character. Yeah, I mean, he was a he was a good red herring. I'll give him that because you're like, oh well, she was sleeping with him. It could have been him, and it it diverted us from thinking that Megan was talking about Tom whenever she referenced him in her perspective, um, which is annoying. I hate the pronoun game, <laughs> but yeah, he he ended up not really being that important, which I guess is the point of a red herring, but very unprofessional. And in the movie, the therapist, Tom and Scott all looked like the same person to me because they they whitewashed that casting of this doctor. And I was like, who is she kissing? Who is that? And when Rachel saw it from the train, I was like, how can she tell that's not just Scott with longer hair? Because <laughs> I couldn't even tell. Okay, well, since you mentioned that, let's talk about how nuts Rachel is. We've touched on this, but you see something from the train and like she inserted herself, like she had this whole story about who they were. She had fake names and then she notices something's off. And then not only does she try to figure it out, she actually goes to his house and continuously basically harasses this guy and I don't know. Emphasis on ass. <laughs> like, slept with him. like how I know that books aren't supposed to be completely realistic, but how realistic is that somebody would be that nuts that they would insert them and become a stalker to literally everyone they meet? Yeah, that, there was that about her. I I think the one of the few good things that was done in this book that was done very well is they, they painted an absolutely focused and clear picture of addiction through that character. I mean, that's how people with addictions think. They think, oh, well, you know, I'll just have this, this one little drink. I've, I've been good for three days. I'll have this other drink. And, and, even, and it was a picture of somebody not with success, but losing that battle. And thus comes the sadness of the book. But I think that... The craziness that we're about to talk about in uh, in her is because she had more than one addiction. She had the alcohol thing, of course, but when her life was shattered by her husband just not wanting to do anything with her because she can't have children, because, you know, that's what we we found out. Initially, it looked like she became a mess and he had to leave her. He made her a mess, you know, after he found out, you know, they couldn't have kids. So... Her other addiction seemed to me to be getting inside anybody else's business because they are actually alive. They have a life going on. And she had 
she had murdered her life. She had really nothing to look forward to except for being crappy at her job and riding a train. So I think that's what tied into her craziness is because when you're involved in somebody else's life, at least you're touching some life instead of your dead one. Yeah, I think that is a lot to do with it. It kind of gave her a purpose outside of, you know, doing nothing, basically just riding the train and pretending like she had something going on and just wasting your money going back and forth, <laughs> buying yeah. alcohol. Um, yeah, but I think I think it does have to do with just trying to feel valuable and purposeful and, you know, probably a lot of boredom as well. I was going to say boredom. <laughs> yeah, because you had she... literally nothing going on in your life. And you're like, oh, I, you know, I can help. <laughs> this is something that will keep me busy. It will keep my mind occupied. Yeah, I, I think it was. So she, she started going to the therapist uh, in order to like suss out if he was the killer. And then she actually got some value out of it. So she clearly needed psychological help. She was not a healthy person, physically or mentally. <laughs> but I, I thought it was mostly boredom because she used to just watch them, you know, from the train and make up stories about them. And then drama occurred. And then she knew a secret. So she wants to get involved. And, and she had nothing better to occupy her time. But yeah, I think you're you're right, Amber, about her wanting to feel valuable because Tom made her feel so worthless when she couldn't have kids, um, which is unfair. Women are more than baby factories. But yeah, it was, she was really sad. And I had a lot of secondhand embarrassment reading her sections every time she did something horrible. I was like, God, please, no, no. <laughs> anything with this. <laughs> right, right. And as we mentioned, a lot of it wasn't, at least in her memories, it wasn't as embarrassing as she thought, you know, it was just the stories that Tom told her about how embarrassing she was and the things that she did that she doesn't remember. But the things that were happening more in present day, that was her doing it. So I kind of wonder if these false memories that Tom gave her kind of took away a lot of the shame like I'm sure she still had shame but she's like well I've already embarrassed myself so much I might as well just do what I need to do right I think once you've crossed a certain line you might as well just keep going right (laughs) you know I'm just thinking now that if there was an additional chapter in this book where some of that maybe was confirmed it was confirmed that after her experience, she she decided that that, real, that was it. She got off drinking. She started feeling better about herself. She saw a real therapist that, that could help her with some of this. If there was some, you know, a little bit of victory at the end, it, this book would have meant a lot more to me if some of that was confirmed. But the way it ended, I don't know one way or the other if she's just going to continue to ride the train and get involved in somebody else's life and, and you know, uh, another murder or or some kind of parking violation or, you know, whatever business she can get involved in somebody else's life instead of having her own. If you show me that she's got her own life at the end and then all that other stuff in the suffering in the beginning would have meant something. It would have been worth it. I think that is one of my biggest um, issues with kind of this whole genre, thriller mysteries, is they all are kind of like that. It's a really slow buildup to 
you know, the explanation of what happened. And then you don't have a lot of resolution for the characters usually because the whole point of the story is finding out who did it, right? And then everyone else is kind of left hanging and it tends to leave a lot of characters in the mysteries feeling flat because you don't get to find out what happened to them. And whereas uh, literary fiction books or even fantasy, a lot of times, you know, you're with that character more closely so they have a lot more resolution Um, but I just read the silent patient right after this so in my head I'm kind of jumbling a lot of it together but it was the same thing where you had this whole big build-up you're alongside these characters and then once it ends you're like okay what what happened to everybody (laughs) what now (laughs) I don't know it just seems to be really common in this this genre and it is frustrating well I can tell you that the movie had a little bit of resolution (laughs) Good. So it, it jumped forward in time because Emily Blunt's hair was suddenly longer. <laughs> and uh, she visited the, the graveyard where Megan was. And then she got on the train and she sat on the other side. So she couldn't look at the houses. And she stared off into the Hudson because also the movie takes place in New York for some reason instead of London. <laughs> did but, she yeah. have a British accent? She did have a British accent. Okay. Yeah, really well, that's British. <laughs> <laughs> So it did have the closure of at least she wasn't still pining for her old life. Like she'd moved on from that and the murder and she was just going to watch the river instead. She didn't, I didn't, I couldn't tell if she had a job. She was well-dressed, but she was well-dressed the whole time. Well, it sounds like the movie is a little bit better than the book. Just the smidge. <laughs> I still walked away unhappy. Sorry, mom and dad. The Amazon Prime rental fee was not quite worth it. <laughs> So any final thoughts about this book? It sounds like we're all kind of on the same page. It was a little disappointing. You know, maybe this was a little bit better back in 2015 when it first came out. But was it at least worth reading? What would you rate it? Um, Well, I think this is going to sound mean because it is. Um, it, (laughs) It was it was worth reading. It was worth reading just because just to point out all the things wrong with the book <laughs> and and what not to do in storytelling. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sorry to say this, but I think that you know the even though it's a bestseller, even though I'm going against the opinion of possibly hundreds of thousands of people, that the story itself didn't do its job. The 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 job for a story for me, there has to be some kind of character development besides just going from being alive to being dead. It has to be some kind of story. I mean, whether it's a victory or a tragedy, if she had dove down into the depths after that incident and she's in an insane asylum, and, and, you know, things, I mean, that would have been a little bit more interesting than just, you know, riding the train again, you know? So I, I think that this story just, I felt like it, it was just a round trip. There was a lot of, there was a lot of misery. You get on the train with this girl, she starts talking about things and you ride through this whole misery thing with a bunch of characters and you end up right back on the train with her. It's a round trip and we didn't, we didn't really do anything. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'd probably give this like three out of five stars. The pacing was good. You know, you wanted to solve the mystery. You wanted it. 
So you were going to keep reading and that's probably what drove most people to, to really enjoy it. But maybe those people don't read a lot of other books and they don't know what's out there in terms of what can happen with characterization and how great closure can be because those things were lacking. And it probably also did some new things like we've been talking about how it, it kind of started the unreliable narrator thing, but now it's a little old. But I will say that the there was a bit of unreliable narrator stuff happening in the lightning, the the light was no, what's it called? Oh no. Trail of lightning, thank you. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Uh, because like Maggie through her POV, we were like, oh, the monster hunter God just like broke up with her. Eh, what a jerk. And then we meet him and we're like, oh, he was abusing her the whole time. Wow. Uh, so I thought that was a really great use of unreliable narrator because she was so reliable in so many other things that that one thing she misunderstood or had bottled up inside, you know, when it was released, we were like, what? But with Rachel, you couldn't trust anything. <laughs> Uh and then Megan was purposefully vague and I just you gotta have a book with characters I like you gotta give me something to grab onto this didn't have it so three out of five stars yeah I'm sorry I forgot my star rating in after my little tirade so let me I I I really want to give it three stars but I can't um there were some things done well it was for the most part, as far as the style of writing and how things were said and, and how um, exposition was handled, it's pretty good. So two and a half stars. Yeah, I'm not generally into audiobooks, but I felt like the the readers did a really good job for this book and having different people voicing the different characters. I will say that now that I'm getting more into audiobooks, a lot of the same people reading them over and over again, and I'm starting to recognize their voices. Like the main character in here was another character in um, Silent Patient, which was weird to read them back to back. I'm like, that's the same lady. Anyway, it read really well as an audiobook, so it was pleasant to listen to in that way. Some books I don't feel like would translate well over to audiobook, and it would feel clunky, so that says a lot about the writing I don't know how much they switched up. I'd have to look at it like side by side to see if they actually reword anything to make it into an audiobook. Um, but I, I would also give it a three out of five. Like I mentioned earlier, the first time I read it, looking back at my initial review, I had given it a five out of five. Uh, but my opinion has changed. And I think I've also just read a lot more in the genre by now. And, and I'm pretty over the unreliable, unlikable characters And I think for our next book, we need to be intentional about finding someone who's a strong female character and also likable. And hopefully we'll have a little bit better luck because I feel like the last few books have kind of been misses for us. Um, So, Amber, I must ask you this point blank for your fans. Since you had given it a five out of five and now it's a three out of five, would you say that shows your growth as an author slash reader? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so when I read it, I wasn't writing my own novels at that point. So I also joined a writing group, which I'm in with you both. And I feel like that has definitely changed my opinion about a lot of books. I'm a lot more critical of books. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot harder to enjoy books now because of the writer group. But it's also uh, really rewarding for when you do find a book that's really good because you appreciate it that much more. 
So yeah, definitely. I think I have grown a lot as a reader and a writer and those two things are definitely connected. So I think it's okay to say something that you liked before you didn't like. And I've done that a lot where I've looked back and reread my favorite books, either from my childhood or when I was a teenager. And I'm like, why did I like this? This is really awful. <laughs> and now even with my daughter just reading picture books, I'm like, I really liked that book when I was a kid, but now reading it as an adult, I'm like, this is really creepy. I don't like this. <laughs> this is really weird and very problematic. Or this is very like, you know, against women. I should probably not read this book anymore. And it's getting donated. <laughs> Someone else's problem. So yeah. Any other final thoughts before we wrap this up? Said your piece. Yep. Pretty much. <laughs> all right. Yeah, it's all been said. Awesome. Well, thank you both. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. And if you have any feedback about this book, definitely reach out to us or leave a comment. And I hope you join us for our next discussion. Thanks for listening to the Judging More Than Just the Cover podcast. I'm Amber Gregg. Join us next month to see what we thought of another best-selling book with a strong female main character. The chat doesn't end here. Let us know your thoughts in the comment area or connect with us on social media. Enjoyed the show? Share the love. Give us a review, like, follow, and a share with your friends. Find more reviews, discussions, and articles related to publishing, writing, and editing on judgingmorethanjustthecover.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace out. Oh, 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 oh,